This is the first for me to preach in a pair of shorts. Never did that ever before. <laughs> in fact, it was the first one I preached here without a shirt and tie on. Because um, anywhere ever it went to preach, in, um, in the early days when we were being trained as local preachers in the Methodist Church, the one thing we were always told, you have to go shirt and tie and you have to have a suit on, you know, make sure you're all well suited up. Never take your jacket off. That was an actual fact. We were always told, never take your jacket off. Um, that's disrespectful. Um, and I remember standing in a church one Sunday morning, it was like this outside and the heating was on. And I was just melting, the sweat was pouring off me. And I took my jacket off and I could see people looking at me going, <gasps> it was either that or pass out. So I, I thought, no, no, we'll just have to take the jacket off. The last time I was here preaching with you, I spoke about Elijah and about the fact that he had this massive big job to go out and to... Um, overthrow all the false gods at the time. And of course, the king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who were promoting all this stuff, um, and their prophets that they had around them, these false prophets. And Elijah had done this amazing job of actually proving how false they really were. And as a result of that, he had to pay a huge price. And he took a meltdown. He completely burnt out. He ended up in the wilderness um, underneath a, a broom tree and he just said to God take me out here Lord just just I want to go I've had enough and God does this amazing thing by um, putting him to sleep and then waking him up and giving him food to eat and then getting him back to sleep again and waking him up for more food and then says guess what I've got a task for you to do you're not finished yet and off he goes and he gets into this big cave and God says come out I want you to come out now, I'm passing by, and I need you to come out. And of course he does at that time, and he takes off the cloak that he has, and he puts it around his head, like almost like he's ashamed of where he has gone, and how he's been, and God says, stop this. I've got a role for you. You have three people to go find. You've got to go and find two kings, and you've got to find a new prophet. And this is where I take up the story for Elisha. And I've often told you this before, Elisha is the hero for me in the Bible. And he's the guy who gets the double blessing and he does this amazing job. And um, what, Elisha, or what Elijah has to do now is he's got to go find Elisha and give him the mantle, the cloak, and he's got to put it on him. And it's interesting because he has to go do this. And the journey, he does it on foot. And he does it in the Sinai Peninsula from Harav, in the cave in Harav where he was, to the Sinai Peninsula. And he's got to go and find Elisha. And the journey, as I said, takes him up near to the guts of a month to complete on foot. Now, it's interesting where that actually happens. It's very near or on the place where Gideon had the victory over the Midianites um, in Judges 7.22. So it's a very significant place. And we take up the story, if you don't mind opening your Bibles, and we're going to read that from... 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, and we're reading from verse 19 to 21. 1 Kings 19, verses 19 to 21. So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He was plying with the twelve yoke. Of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up um, to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said. 
And then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burnt the plowing equipment to cook the meat and give it to the people. And they ate. And he set out to follow Elijah to become his attendant. The story is a good one because here is a man who walks up out of nowhere. No doubt they've never met before. And he takes his cloak off and he just puts it around Elisha. Now, could you imagine if someone, you're out there and you're out in the garden, you're digging in the garden, you've got the lawnmower out, the lawnmower, there you are, you're pushing along the lawnmower and some guy comes out of nowhere and puts a cloak on your back. (laughs) What are you going to do, aren't you? You're going to go, whoa, weird, you know, there's something wrong with this guy. Get away out of my house, get off my grounds, please. But it seems, Elisha seems to know. Whether it is the fact that um, perhaps Elijah had this reputation and by reputation they knew of him and they have heard of him or when he happens, Elijah just knows this is right. It's a calling. He has this calling to go do this job. And so it is a lovely picture of handing over. And he's plowing in the fields. That's the amazing thing is he's got these 12 oxen. He's plowing in the fields. This guy walks up to him and puts a cloak on his back. And it seems that throwing a prophet's cloak around person apparently symbolizes the passing of the power and authority of office to an individual. Now, remember when I told you the last time that I was here when we were talking about this, that only kings and priests were anointed? Well, Elijah has this job to do. He has two kings to anoint and a prophet. A prophet never got anointed. And so um, the handing over the power it is a very significant thing. And you can see there when it says, Elijah went from there from, to, from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12 pair, and Elijah went up to him and threw back his cloak around him. It's the handing over of the power, isn't it? It's the handing over from one person to another. I was trying to find an example of this, and very, very thankful that I found this one. That's very significant, isn't it? I laughed when I saw this. I thought, well, this is going to be very pleasing to some people in this church. This is Stephen Jarrett, isn't it? Handing over to Jordan Henderson. Am I right? Yep. Yes. He's, the both of them, well, Stephen Jarrett is the captain. He's handing over the armband to, to Jason, Jordan, sorry, given over. He's handing over to him this role that he's going to have. Now, it's interesting because when you think about this, You've got this man out in the middle of a field of nowhere, plowing up the ground. And when you can think about that significantly, this is after there's been a big massive drought for years and years. And all of a sudden now that's over and these people are plowing the ground. So they're trying to get, you know, crops into the ground. They're trying to get food to grow. And here is this prophet walks up out of nowhere and he puts this cloak onto this guy. And it's interesting because when I was looking at and thinking about this, I thought, what a place to go look for a prodigy. I mean, you could go to the school of prophets. They could have went to some place, you know, where it's a holy place or in this place of prayer, but he's in the middle of a field. I mentioned to you Gideon there. 
I mean, when you think about Gideon, Gideon was the man who said to the Lord, I'm the least of my tribe. Why are you picking me to do this job? And you've got to remember the massive job that Gideon had to do. His role was to get rid of a million Midianites who were in the land. They were absolutely ravaging their land. They were taking their their cattle. They were taking all their harvest. They were absolutely stripping it. They brought their own cattle in. They were eating all their grass. They were absolutely destroying it. And God says to Gideon, he says, you only need 300 men and you can deal with these people. What a mammoth task. And he did it. And he said, I'm the least. What a place to find a prodigy. I love what my um, Bible scholar and commentator Matthew Henry observed that Elisha is not at the school of prophets among scholars or deeply embroiled in a spiritual debate or in a quiet place of prayer. He is plowing a field and the Lord went to call him. You'd be forgiven to think that maybe Elisha could have been shocked about some guy just coming up or confused or puzzled about it. But like I said, he seemed to know. And he said, hold on. Um, can you give me a minute? I want to go back. I want to kiss my mother and father goodbye. And then I'm going with you. And it is a good, lovely picture of that where he is accepting the call of God. Commitment to spiritual service. Now, this is something that really struck me when I was reading this. It was the commitment to spiritual service and it has a cost. Every job we do for God in the church has a, has a, a cost to it. And one of those is being prepared. Elisha had to be prepared. The one thing he had to be prepared for was to say goodbye to his family, to the nice surroundings that he lived in. Everything that he understood, he had to leave that behind and he had to be prepared for that. And I'm often saying to folks, if God's calling you into service for him, you've got to be prepared for life to change and to do something different. You've got to be prepared to be giving yourself completely. Secondly, he had to learn to serve. It was learning to serve was probably the most hardest thing for him. Because what he had to do there is he had to burn his past. And that was in the form of the equipment that he had because he took that equipment, he piled it all up in the middle of the field, he went and he got the oxen, he slaughtered them all and he cooked a meal for everyone in order, I would suspect, to say goodbye to everyone. But the most important thing that he needed to have um, was sacrifice. He needed to sacrifice. He was going to sacrifice everything around him, his lovely, comfortable home. And I assumed that when I, when I was reading this, I was assuming the fact he had 12 oxen. Most poor people don't have 12 oxen. They're lucky if they've got one, never mind 12. So I was assuming that perhaps maybe he came from a well-off background and that he probably lived it up in a kind of a sense of the word. And so he was just doing more than just, he was sacrificing he was sacrificing his family, his well-off life, and leaving it all behind. His comfortable home and his life. And then he had to have a willing and available heart. That can be a hard one. A willing and available heart. It was more than just a farewell party for Elisha. It was a moment of spiritual commitment, sending out a message to his family that... Unto the world that he was available for God. 
That's a hard one. Having a willing heart and being available for God to do things. He was being called to accept that call. He was going to serve. He was going to learn from that prophet Elijah. And so Elijah, Elijah now begins a time of training with Elijah in a humble service. Um, and here he was. He was going to begin this new and whole way of life that was going to be different. God, um, and while some of God's servants, like Moses, Elijah, um, and John the Baptist, most of them spent their time in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness. They were in the desolation of the wilderness for the experience. But for him, it was going to be a case of mentorship. He was going to be mentored by this superman, this, this top-end, top-man prophet. He was going to be mentored to become the new super-prophet. When you look at it, um, mentorship is a biblical pattern when you think about it. Joshua served under Moses. Now you know that Moses started out to do a great job and then he let God down, didn't he? He didn't, uh, he didn't listen to the command that God had given to him. And so therefore God said, you're not going into the promised land. Joshua had to do that. And then there was Peter and the disciples who followed Jesus, and they were mentored through Jesus. And then there was Saul of Tarsus, Paul, who was mentored by Barnabas. And then, of course, there was Timothy and Titus, and they learned under Paul. When you look at that, when you think about that, you, you understand that God is going to teach, and he's going to bring people into your life to help you, and to be, make you become the person that you're going to become. And here Elisha is going to be trained by the top man. He has got to spend time with him. He has got to learn from him. He has got to listen to him. He has got to participate and watch all the time as he does this. Our story starts with a discouraged, burnt out prophet. It's incredible when you think about it. A man who was ready to quit. But rather than allowing Elijah to walk away from his call and mission, God gives him a new mission define and anoint and train his successor. And if we look at it in the right, um, if, if we look at it right from the odd moment when Elijah places that cloak on his back and his response was, his heart was available. That's the thing was, Elisha was ready to be available. And that's the thing I think we need to take here, that he was available. You know that wonderful hymn writer, um, and she wrote to God be the glory great things you've done. Her name was Fanny J. Crosby and she wrote an amazing amount of hymns, thousands of them. And one of the less known hymns that she wrote was this one. To work, to work, we are servants of God. Let us follow the path that our master has trod. With the balm of his counsel, our strength to renew. Let us do by his grace what he has called us to do. Everybody in this room today has all faced or all had to go through some kind of training. All of us in our jobs, we have to train. We have to learn how to do that job. For some of us, we have to spend a few years doing it. For others, they've got to spend a long time doing it. And I know that we've got doctors within the congregation. And I don't know, what do they do, seven, ten years or something? It's a long, long time to learn their, their trade, to do their job, their profession. For me as a plumber, I had to do four years of being an apprentice. And my goodness, 
what a traumatic time that was at some taste because I met some of the most I met some of the most nastiest individuals that you could ever want to meet. The most narcissistic, you know, sarcastic, unbelievable people you could ever set eyes on. I, I remember one time this guy and we were we were in a boiler house where we were doing a whole fit out in a massive big boiler house in a big a police station. And the, the ceilings above were all concrete, so they were all concrete, and I had to get up on a trestle really high and get over the top and get my wee legs over the top of that, lock them in and get this heavy drill and drill up. And of course, when it was drilling, the little fan blades inside the motor were blowing the dust back in my eyes. And so here I am, up on the drill, like this. And of course, it wasn't going up like this, it was going like that. And by the time I had finished, it had gone up this angle. And so I drilled all these holes, and some of them were really bad. I never realised until he got up the ladder with the big roll boat to push up through this to put the brackets on to carry all the pipe runs. And he couldn't get this to go in, and eventually it went in at the wrong angle, and he started shouting at me. Look at this, you little so-and-so. If I have to come down off this ladder, and he starts throwing things at me and calling me all the names of the day. You know, you could say from experiences that, you know, that, that could tra traumatise you. It actually taught me how to deal with people like him. Namely, in a piece of three by four in the back of the neck, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I'm only joking. It actually really taught me a lot about how to deal with people like that. Those experiences I went along, and by the way, not all of my um, journeyed men that I dealt with and, and who taught me my trade were bad. There was a lot of gentlemen I worked with, and they were excellent, and they taught me a lot about my trade. But we all have to train. We all have to do something that helps us with our jobs. And according to scholars, um, when we enter into the Second Kings, namely in, in, in chapter 2, Elijah and Elisha have been together for roughly about 7 to 10 years. And in that time, Elisha has served, learned, watched, and he has taken part in the ministry with Elijah. You see, faith can't be taught. It's something you learn along the way. And I truly believe that. You pick up things by watching other people. I have to say one of the greatest privileges I've had over the years is spending loads of time with older Christians. Young people, I'll say this one thing to you. Spend time with older Christians. Okay? Not ones like me, because I'm not sensible. You'd probably be better off to talking to people who are, keep you right. But I spent loads of time with older Christians. And the lovely thing I spent time with whenever I would chat to them was their experience, their testimonies, the things that they'd done within their ministry. We used to have a lovely couple in Thomas Street where I used to go, um, Winnie and Wesley Gould, and they were missionaries. And they were missionaries in Brazil. And I'd known them for years, and Wesley was a local preacher like myself, and when he was, they were wonderfully, oh, their faith was amazing. When you sat down to talk to them, you just felt so privileged being in their company. And it wasn't until one day I happened to be clearing out a cupboard in the church, and I found this little pamphlet, and it was their story about going out to Brazil. And I was absolutely blown away by the fact that at one stage they were out setting up a church. They were church planting. 
And they'd set this church up. And at one stage, they went into the, in, in the outer parts of the jungle. They were talking to people and they were ministering to them when he was a nurse. And so she would use those skills that she had. But I hadn't realized that at gunpoint, they were held at gunpoint by a guy who was going to shoot them dead. And I listened to those experiences and I thought, my goodness. And I got the opportunity to sit down and chat with them about it. And Wesley was so like, oh, well, you know, you know, a gun to your head. You know, they set up an amazing church over there that's still today. It's, it's absolutely flourishing. It is really strong. A massive, massive job. I couldn't say this enough to you. If you want to be trained in life, you want to understand what it is to be a faithful servant of God, spend time with older Christians. That's where you learn how to become faithful. Like I said to you, faith isn't something that you can teach people. It's something you have to watch others doing to learn it better. It is incredible. The times that I used to sit down with the older generation in my last church and some of the, old, the churches that I used to go and preach in and I'd t- take time out to go and sit with folks and their stories, oh my goodness, their stories are absolutely amazing. Why aren't older Christians discipling the younger? Why aren't younger people spending time with the older generation to be discipled? It's good. It's great. In... My last former church, I used to have the older generation to come up and sit down and chat to me. And sometimes they would chastise me. And sometimes they would encourage me. And sometimes they would bring words from the Lord to me. And it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And it brings me to that lovely verse. It brings me to that lovely verse in Ephesians. Um, It brings me to that, sorry, that lovely verse in, chap- in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 20 to 21. Now to him is able to do more, immeasurably more than we can all ask or imagine, or according to his power that has worked within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, every time I read that piece of scripture, that says a lot to me. It says a lot to me about how much we limit God, actually, because that doesn't scratch the surface of what God can actually do for us. And this is where we come to the point where Elisha's being asked to do the big ask. He's going to be doing the big ask. He is going to become a super prophet. He is going to do twice as many miracles as his predecessor. He is going to do far more He is going to raise people from the dead. This man is going to do the most incredible things. He's going to heal um, a a top military brass from leprosy. He is going to stop an army from coming in to get the Israelites. And he does it through one thing, prayer. Maybe the next time I'm asked to go and do this, we'll talk about the the miracles because I'd love to do that because that's one of my favourite subjects is the miracles that Elisha does. But on one occasion, he is with his servant and I'm not sure whether his servant is Gehazi or not, but he's with his servant and uh, they're in a tent and the servant walks out, out of the tent and he sees all the Syrians all around him and he runs back in and he says, you know, we're toast. We're dead. We're not getting out of here today. 
And I, I think Elisha must have laughed at him at that stage. And he said, no, 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 don't worry. He says, we're, we're, we're good. We're going to be good. We're fine. No, he says, you don't understand. He says, you need to go out, peep your head out, have a look around, look there, look there, we're toast. He says, we're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. And Elisha does this one thing, and this is where this piece comes in here. He's, he says, Lord, will you open the eyes of my servant so he can see? And when he opens the eyes of the servant and he opens up the flop of the tent and he looks out and up on the hills and right around them in the skies there are thousands upon thousands of angels with their swords drawn in their chariots and they're ready to protect. And it's all through prayer. He opens the eyes and he has the power to be able to pray that prayer to open the eyes of that servant and see. Well, let's look at this a wee bit deeper. More than we can ask or imagine, that's really what we need to think about today. If you're being called into ministry for God and in the church and commitment, commitment is the hardest thing in a church, it really is. When I look at people who are called into ministry, I look at them and what they have to do and what they've got to go through and the hardships. When I look at our own pastors in our church, David and Linda, what an example these people are to us. These people have a family. They have jobs. They have full-time jobs. They have family. They've even got two dogs and loads of chickens and cats and everything at the house. <laughs> and they managed to come to this church and minister to us. On Tuesday night, they come to prayer meetings. And yet they have commitments at home to their family, but they're here. And that's the example for us. And you know something I know that they have gone through a lot in that time of the ministry in this church where they have watched people walk away from here. They have watched people to whom they have ministered to that they have wished that they'd stayed around. I know that they have been hurt by individuals, but that's what you have to do when you become involved in ministry in church. It's a tough one. Commitment is the hardest thing in the world sometimes, but you have to do it. And if God's calling you, he's equipping you. One thing I will say to you is this. If you feel called today to do something in the church, come talk to the leadership and tell them. Very important. Like I told you the last time I was here, when the Lord called me to be a local preacher in the Methodist Church, I immediately said no to him. There was no way I was standing in a pulpit to preach anywhere, anytime, not happening. And God brought me to the place where I had to be submissive to him and do the job. And I remember saying, right, I'll go and see the minister. And it was the Reverend Cecil Newell. And I went up to him and I said, and before I went up to him and I thought, gosh, this man's going to say no. And he said, don't be stupid. You're not going to be doing that. We're not asking you to let you. We're not going to let you in the pulpit. <laughs> There's no way I would let you in the pulpit, son. You know, this is never going to happen. And you know, I went up to him this after church on Sunday and I said, can I have a wee chat with you? Of course he said, what's on your mind? I said, you know, I feel called by God and I've, and I've really tested this one out. And I explained to him how I tested it out. And I said, the Lord's calling me to be a local preacher. And I said, I wasn't sure about it. He says, hold on. He said, do you want to be a local preacher? I said, yes. Wonderful, he said. Amazing. He said, I'm going to put your name up. I will personally, say, stand for you on this one. He says, that's incredible. I'd love to do that. He says, I am so delighted to hear that, Nigel. I was taken back. I thought, woo. <laughs> Yeah, they're actually going to let me do this. Whoa. I'm not kidding. That's exactly how I said it to myself. Ooh, they're going to let me into a pulpit. Whoa. 
What a daunting task the first time I ever did that. It was in a wee church away out the birches called Ballinari Methodist Church. It's the loveliest wee place you've ever been to. Unfortunately, it's closed. Closed a couple of years ago. And I went to the very last service because it was my first place I ever preached. And they have, I think I told you this the last time, they had this lovely potbelly stove in the middle of the church. And when I first started going there, they used to light it. Um, and, it and if you look out beyond the church, you can see the Loch Ness. It's just over a field away from them. And uh, on a windy day, it blew the smoke down into the church. And a big high pulpit in there, and, and you could sort of look around to see if the congregation were still there because the place was full of smoke. <laughs> and I'm not joking, I'm seriously, it really was. And it, it was either Baltically cold or unbelievably hot, one or the other. But they had to do away with the stove for health and safety reasons. They kept it there, but they put ordinary heating in, thank goodness, you know, which was, which was quite good. But what a lovely wee church that was, and the first day I ever preached. You know what, there is a... There is a price to pay when you get called by God to go do things, but it's a good price. It's not a bad price. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And let's break it down for you, okay? Our God is. Our God is. Think about that. Our God is able to do. Our God is able to do, and you're being called by God, then our God is able to do far more. And I think we struggle with this a wee bit sometimes because we limit God, don't we? We limit God on what he can do for us. Think about Elisha. Here he was in a field plowing and this man comes up and puts a cloak on his back and says, right, come on lad, you're the new man. We're going to be training you. We're going to be showing you what to do here. And he does it. Now he's had to pay a price for that because he's walking away from his family, from everything he knows. I doubt that he ever got married. It probably wouldn't have been a good idea if he got married anyway because he's a prophet. You think about his wife buying him Christmas presents. She says, I got you a surprise. No, I know what you've got me actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good fun that, is it? You know, it's, you always hate that, don't you? Somebody's going, oh, I know what this is. <laughs> it's a surprise. No, it's not. I know what this is. God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask and think beyond far more beyond all that we ask and think do you know one thing that really used to bother me in church the one thing that used to bother me in the churches that I went that I've gone to was the fact that the prayer meeting was so badly attended that's the bit that used to get to me probably the most Prayer meetings are the centre of our church. Now I've got to say, not this church, by the way, because we have an amazing prayer meeting in this church. To pray with people in this church is absolutely fabulous, to say the least. It is a privilege to come here on a Tuesday night. I absolutely love it and wouldn't miss it. Man, you have done for the last two weeks. <laughs> Just in case somebody pulls me up on that one afterwards. And I believe that one of the weeks was that was moved, and I'm sure it was to do with football. Shame on you. That's all I can say. <laughs> I don't like football, so it didn't bother me. Anyway, prayer. Why is it that prayer is the most underutilized resource in the life of believers? Why is that? Why is prayer the most underutilized part of your life as a Christian? 
The key is not to use it when you're in trouble. You know what I mean? It's, it's where you go to as a last resort. It's your first resort. It's what you should be every time. Prayer, 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 prayer. And you know how I learned that? Do you know where I got that all from? Watching older Christians pray. Their faith taught me so much more. And if I was to impress upon you all here today, it's this one thing. It's this one thing. Pray. You pray and 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 you pray. I read a very interesting article not so long ago about a guy who was in the satanic movement. And he spent a lot of time hating Christians and going against them. And when the Lord very much changed that man's life and he became wonderfully saved and all that baggage was removed from him, this one thing he said that really hit me hard. He said, the one thing we loved, he said, is when Christians didn't pray. Because he said they were the easiest ones we could go after. When a church didn't pray, they were the easiest ones to go after. When a church didn't involve themselves in prayer, they were the easiest place to destroy. Why is prayer the underutilized resource in our lives of believers? Why is that? We need to pray more. Tuesday night prayer meeting is where you do it. This is what we make. This is how you make a kingdom. This is how you make a kingdom for God. This is how you change things. And here's it. This is it. For me, this is what the older Christians used to say. Nigel, prayer changes things. I learned that from the older generation who used to say to me, Nigel, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. I can say it again to you. Prayer changes things. I'm going to say it one more time. Prayer changes things. You want to see a church move forward? Prayer changes it. You want to see people outside being saved? Prayer changes it. Elisha prayed for his servant. And the Lord opened his eyes to see the angels. And he says these amazing words. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Hallelujah. Think about it. One of the other wonderful miracles that Elisha does is the Shumanite woman. They built a little house, a little part under their house, especially for Elisha and Gehazi, a servant, to call into. And he wanted to repay her and he said, what would he? He, she, she, she said, I don't think it's... He found out. He's a prophet. He knew all right, didn't he? She wanted a child. They had a child. The child turned about 14. He died. Elisha came back. And he got on top of the little boy and he put his hands over him and he began to pray. And the, uh, and the breath came back and the life came back into that little boy. And he came back and he prayed. Prayer changes things, friends. And it does it mightily. Our God, able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. The one thing I love is prayer intercession. And that's the bit that makes the difference. I remember reading about a Welsh preacher, uh, Rhys Howe, and he, called, he did intercessory prayer. And it's an old book. And was I reading through this about the intercessory, perhaps absolutely overwhelmed by this man who was involved in the, in, in the, uh, the revival in, of the Welsh. And the Welsh had an amazing revival. And this man is into intercessory prayer. And he changed. And he helped change people's lives through intercessory prayer. Coming back to Elisha. By now, he realizes 
that the time has now come for him and Elijah to part company because they've had, what, seven to ten years together. He's now been involved in the ministry. He has watched. He has participated. He has listened. He's been there. He saw everything that the master has done. And now he realizes it's now Elijah's time to be taken up. And it's interesting because Elijah goes up into heaven. He doesn't die. One of two people in the Bible who didn't, who didn't die and went straight to heaven. Enoch was the other one. Elisha was, was another one. In a whirlwind taken up and left behind. He now is at the point where he has to get involved in ministry. Here's the big question I need to ask you all today. Sorry, I just wanted to put that up there. There's another thing about prayer, and that's it there. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the thing about Christianity. This is what I love about Christianity, is the fact that you can fight the powers and the principalities. You can fight Satan and the, the, the satanic world. And there it is. It's, it's, in white, it's in the writing for you there. It's in blue. I was going to say black and white. It's in blue. If God is for us, who can be against us? Hallelujah. Are you fighting at the minute with your faith? Is God calling you to a ministry even perhaps? Perhaps maybe he wants you to do a job, a role, and you've been hanging back on that, thinking to yourself, well, now, if I do that with job, it means I won't get to see Coronation Street at night time, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, going out coffee with the friends and all the rest of it, and uh, all, sort, all sorts of things. You know what? Sorry, coming back to the prayer thing, right? I remember saying to a lady in church one day, in the, in, in the lot of the church I was in, I said to her, why do you never go to prayer meetings? Oh, she says, Nigel. Oh, and I just says, I really struggle with that. I says, but why? Why don't you go to prayer meetings? Every time I go to prayer meetings, I cry. I says, and? Well, I don't like crying in front of people. I says, you cry because the Lord blesses you. You cry because you feel what other people are feeling. I said, that's because you're ministering. That's the ministry that you have. You're a compassionate person. She started going to prayer meetings after that. And yes, she did. She cried. But that's because she loved. Who can be against you? Absolutely no one can be against you because this is the God that we adore. This is the God we serve. And Elisha has now become this great prophet because God's called him. And yes, there is a price to ministry. There is absolutely no doubt. I used to say in our younger days, when Merlin and I were younger and we had our children at home when they were very young, I used to say I seen more of other people's children than I did in my own. Because of the ministry, she was in girls' brigade, I was in Sunday school, I was involved in other things in church. And that's what you did, because you spent time with other people's children. You know what's really nice? And it really heartens me, and it blesses me, and it, it, it just humbles me every time. But I meet some of those kids that I taught in Sunday school who are now married and have their own children. Apart from the fact that it makes me feel incredibly old when I see that. But it's lovely when they stop to say, you know what? I was really blessed in your Sunday school class. I loved my time with you in Sunday school. I learned so much from you in Sunday school. And the fact that you were nuts as well, it, was, it made it even better. Who can be against us? No one, because God is for us. The point I want to make today and finish off with this is, are you up for the big ask? That's the question. Are you up for the big ask? Is God asking something of you right now? What's he asking of you? What's he putting to you? 
or you got so comfortable that you've forgotten that God actually wants to do something hard. If you said to God, what now, Lord? Someone once said to me, Nigel, that's a dangerous prayer. And I said, it's the only prayer. You've got to keep continually saying to God, what now, Lord? What will I do for you now? What will I go? What will I do for you, Father? Open up the pathways for me. Open the doors for me or close the doors for me on the things that I don't need to do anymore. Very often we do jobs in churches and the Holy Spirit has long since left it. But because traditionally we keep doing it, we just keep doing it because that's what we do. But God's not there no more. Is God asking you to do a big ask? What is that big ask? Is he, is he putting you into a particular ministry? Is he taking you out into the, somewhere in the world to become a missionary? Is he asking you to be an engineer somewhere out in Africa? I went out to Africa for three whole weeks. And the three weeks I was in Africa, oh my word, was I blessed. Was I blessed. I actually almost nearly felt like I nearly wanted to become a missionary there and then. Not something that God called me for because when I came back, I tested that one. But I saw what other missionaries were doing. It's a hard, a hard place and it's a, it's a hard job. But I tell you what, I loved it. I was bringing water, to a, a, a fresh water into a hospital. And they were using um, the water that they would get from the pipes out in the street, which was really bad quality and didn't happen very often. So we put a, a, a deep well pump down and we were piping this water up into the hospital, up into the big tanks. It was an amazing time. It was an amazing time to meet people and to see all these lovely, lovely people humbled by so much by what they did. It was one of the days we were digging a trough right across the hospital, out into the field where the, 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 the well was. And uh, I was standing, standing talking to one of the guys that was with me from Northern Ireland. And the next thing I looked over and there was a goat and the goat just went boom. I thought, that's weird. The next thing I could see the locals, the, one of the guys, big machete, running down. And he goes, whoom. And it was a snake, a snake had come up and bit, bit the goat, and the goat died. And I thought, whoa, it's a snake in the grass. I said, did you see that? He says, yeah, I saw that. That wasn't the bit that annoyed me most of all. It was the fact that the guy looked at the snake, held it up and looked at it like this, and he kept looking at it like this, and he going, and he gets his machete and starts chopping it all up into wee steaks, because he's going he's gonna to cook this bad boy, you know? And I'm standing there going, <laughs> you know, and the, the matron in the hospital came out and chased him. She says, you're not doing that here, you know, in their language. You know, you, out you go, go on. But these were lovely, lovely, humble people that I met, and they changed me. You know the, th the thing that I was saying to you about people who have faith? You don't get teaching that stuff. You've got to learn it along the way. I was at a church there, Wenchie Methodist Church in the middle of Ghana. And there was a Saturday night, and every, Saturday, every night we would go at about 5 or 6 o'clock it got dark very early in the evening and we would go and meet at the Methodist church and we'd all go and sit up in a little cafe that they had and we'd drink Coke, Coca-Cola, because that's all we could do at night and that's what we did and we drank Coke. And this night I was standing at Wenchie Methodist church and there was a prayer meeting on the go. And I stepped inside the, into the little vestibule that was there and I listened to the prayers. And I thought, gosh, that's not the local dialogue. They've been there for two weeks so I sort of got my head around the the Houthi or whatever it is they call their language there, and I've got my head around a bit of it, but that definitely wasn't their language. These people were praying in tongues. They were praying in tongues, and guess what they were praying for? Rain. Because when the lady came out, I said, if you don't mind me asking, I said, what's happening? 
we're having a prayer meeting, she said. I had to learn to talk really slow there. You had to go, what are you doing? You know, really slow. And she said, well, we are having a prayer meeting. And they were praying for rain because they hadn't had rain in months. The crops were dying in the field. They were getting very worried and very, very, very anxious about the fact that this was happening. And they had this prayer meeting in tongues. Oh boy, it was amazing. It, it, made, the, it, it made the hair stand up in my arms and, and the Mac. Oh, it was unreal. Unbelievable. And, and then all my, my friends all arrived. All of us, our team, there was 10 of us in this particular team. There's 58 of us all together, or 59, I think. And we'll dot it out all over Ghana. But this, this team in Wenchie, we went off to have our usual bottle of Coke. And when we arrived up there, had it. So we all agreed. The next day we went to church. Three-hour service, folks. Three hours. A three-hour service they had. You wouldn't have saw it because it was so amazing. These people are all dancing. There they were. Even when the offering came up, they all danced up to the offering plate and they all danced back. And you know what was really funny? I was doing the video a bit. It was the people from Northern Ireland who couldn't do it. It stood out like a sore thumb, you know. They, they didn't want to do it, but they had to do it, you know, that kind of way. We were supposed to meet the next night at 5 o'clock Sunday evening. It began to rain. It rained like I've never seen rain. I've seen rain in Northern Ireland, but I've never seen rain like this. This rain was taking out all sorts of mounds and, and it was flooding down the streets. It was flooding past the house that we were staying in. It was unbelievable. It was so loud. They have tin roofs in their house. It was so loud I couldn't even sleep. It rained for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. What about that for faith? It's the big ask. Are you up for the big ask? I'm going to leave that with you today and pray that God will bless you. Elijah was up to go and look for Elisha and Elisha was up for the big ask. Are you up for the big ask? And maybe the next time if I ever come back we'll talk about Elisha's miracles perhaps. I don't know. We'll see what the Lord does there. Are you up for the big ask? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, you call us to do so many things. Sometimes we hear you, Father. Sometimes we just don't want to hear you. But Lord, as there's someone here today who wants to do for you, Lord, but they're being apprehensive. Lord, as there's someone who is watching this service um, from their TV right now or their phones or wherever, and you have asked them to do something, the big ask. Lord, will you give them faith? Father, will you give them the strength, Lord? Will you give them the courage to just grasp hold of what you've asked them to do? Lord, will you bless them mightily? Will you help them, Father? Will you give them all the tools and all the courage that they need, Father, to do this? And most importantly, Lord, will you fill them with the faith required, Lord, to carry out this role? Father, bless us as we go into worship. Lord, surround us with your mighty angel. Cover us in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, anoint us in the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus. Amen.